Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Nishtanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is Jonathan Chait, political columnist for New York Magazine. Welcome, one and all. Delighted you could all be here. Jonathan, nice to have you back. Thank you. So let us begin with a story that turned out to be a little bit surprising. I think it's fair to say that uh, Joe Biden delivered what most people think was a quite strong State of the Union address. Not too many people watched it. The viewership was down even compared to his last State of the Union address. But among the chattering class, it was viewed as a huge success. So the first thing to address, I guess, is did he succeed in beginning to push back against the narrative that is out there? There was a poll, for example, showing that 62% of respondents felt that he had accomplished not very much or little or nothing while in the Oval Office. And clearly this speech was at least in part designed to rebut that idea. So Jonathan, what do you think? You know, he hasn't accomplished much of what the Democratic liberal base wanted him to accomplish. But what he did accomplish, I think, are some items that are going to help him a lot in his campaign. He got an infrastructure bill, which Donald Trump elevated into a, you know, the definition of a presidential accomplishment and one that Trump was unable to do. And he also got the chips and science bill and he got a lot of infrastructure funding in the Inflation Reduction Act that he did pass. So I think what he was able to do was frame himself as a kind of economic nationalist who really was able to direct a lot of investment into towns that have been hollowed out, the towns that Donald Trump claims to have represented. So I think that aspect of his message was pretty effective. And I think he's signaling his intention to make that probably a good chunk of his reelection message and use that to take credit for the economic recovery, assuming the recovery stays on course. So I thought we really started to see a preview of the campaign themes he intends to use. And and I think they're pretty good ones. Damon, some people criticized him for leaning so heavily on the economic message because they said, you know, he's giving a hostage to fortune here. It's possible that we are in the wonderful unicorn land of a soft landing and no recession after about a pretty intense inflation that is beginning to abate, has been for six months. But we might not be. We might be about to plunge into a recession. And if his message is heavily weighted toward the economy is terrific, what do you think? Well, I think if the economy isn't doing well, if we hit a recession and it lingers on into 2024, Biden's going to have a very tough reelect regardless of what he said at this state of the union. Yeah. And I think as a kind of laying down a marker for what the message in that reelect is going to be, this was a really really smart move. Republicans do best when they can get traction on culture war issues and The fact is they have taken that insight, which I think is largely true, and they have leaned into it so heavily, as you could hear from the Sarah Sanders rebuttal message, 
But you really get the sense the Republicans are painting a view of the country where we're divided into kind of armed camps and conservatives are kind of at, at gunpoint at progressives trying to make them bow down before the kind of tyrant state of the woke regime. And instead of that, Biden is saying, in effect, you know what, whatever you think about some of those issues, they're kind of niche issues, they're boutique issues. Even if you think they matter, lots of other things matter too. And on those things, what we, the Democrats, are saying and doing are on the right side. And actually, as soon as we say that, the Republicans are going to have to try to hit us back on it. And the fact is that on those economic issues, they're not where the voters are. They want tax cuts. They want to cut entitlements. And so as soon as Biden can establish that the actual debate is going to be about economics, Democrats are on much firmer ground. So again, if the economy tanks, then of course that doesn't hold. But Aside from that eventuality, the general kind of either or question of what Democrats should be talking about, it's clearly uh, an economic message, one that's focused on people's struggles, the efforts of the Democrats over lots of Republican opposition to pass legislation that's going to make people's lives a little better and certainly not hack away at the programs that people rely on to pay the bills and get through the day. So. As a minor member of the chattering classes, as you put it at the top of the show, I thought uh, Biden did a remarkably strong job in this speech and uh, I think is headed in the right direction. And fingers crossed that the economy holds up. Bill, one problem with the economic uh, you know, accomplishments message, and certainly there's lots to brag about. I mean, the unemployment rate was 3.4% last month, which is its lowest level since May of 1969, which is even before I was a grown-up. So that's pretty impressive. On the other hand, he only slightingly mentioned inflation. And look, it just seems to me that the reason people give him such low marks on the economy, which they do, is that the inflation has been eating away at their paychecks. And so real wages have not kept pace. People do not feel wealthier. They feel poorer. And uh, you mentioned it and said, oh, it's coming down. But the failure to address that directly, I don't know, maybe there's nothing he can say. But what did you make of that? Well, the overall theory of the speech was talk about things that are arguably going well and don't talk about things that are arguably going wrong. And if it were the case that the president can completely control the public's agenda of concerns, that would be a very effective strategy. I don't think that's true. And to build on your question, politics, I think, is a matter, like a football game, of both well-judged offense and effective defense. And if you have a great offense, but you've neglected your defense, on balance, things aren't going to go very well for you. And uh, so I think that the speech leaned much too far in the direction of offense to the neglect of defense. I'll give you another example. 
as I pointed out in a piece that I did for Brookings a couple of days ago, over the past two years, public concern about the budget deficit has shot up by 15 percentage points. By the way, that's a broad-based increase. It's up 17 for Republicans, but also 15 for Democrats and about the same for independents. And the president really didn't take on that issue at all. And uh, we've gone through an extended period where that issue didn't matter. I think we're back in a zone where it does matter. So I agree with Damon that the speech has a clear strategy and that the president was effective in executing that strategy. Whether it's a good strategy is a different question altogether. And I must say, I have my doubts. Linda, one moment during the speech that everybody thought was, you know, very, very strong for Biden and kind of funny and great was that he tangled with the Republican hecklers and uh, they got into it about Social Security and Medicare. Look, it's perfectly fine to point out the hypocrisy of Republicans who talk about cutting government programs until they're in charge and then they just increase them, which is a fact. But at the same time, I'm not cheering that both parties are cheerfully agreeing and shaking hands on never confronting our problem of out of control entitlement spending. I mean, that's what we saw. We saw both parties saying, yep, we can see a huge crisis coming in a very few years, you know, some people say it's going to be, you know, less than 10 years, less than five, according to some estimates, before the uh, Social Security Trust Fund is out of money and you have to use treasury funds. But in any event, the cheering about that, both from the commentators and the politicians, strikes me as not a good thing for our country. Well, it was wonderful political theater. You have to give him that. I mean, I, you know, it's been a long time since I sat up and actually listened to a State of the Union address. I find them generally boring. I noticed Fox News was touting that this was the second lowest watch uh, State of the Union in recorded history, I guess. And the last one that was lower than this was Bill Clinton in 1993. And I thought, well, if that's the case, it may be, you know, bode well for <laughs> Joe Biden. But look, you're right on the substance. There is no question that if Americans are indeed worried about us having to pay for our debts and being able to keep solvent, both the uh, Medicare and uh, Social Security program, that requires changes. And those changes are either going to happen or we're going to be in a crisis. One of my substantive criticisms of Biden's message was when talking about the economy, and this relates to Social Security, was that he didn't talk about immigration in the context of the economy. Because the thing that is saving and has saved uh, both the uh, Medicare funds and Social Security is the contributions of people who work, because as we all know, you know, this notion that those of us on Social Security are simply taking out of the system the money that we put in is nonsense. It is current workers and their contributions that are paying for my Social Security check and I assume Bill's 
as well. I don't know if anybody else is uh, eligible on the program, but that's the way it is. It is paid for by existing workers. And the fact is, we don't have enough new people coming into the system to keep these programs afloat. And one of the reasons we don't is that we have been so stingy in our immigration policy, certainly uh, essentially trying to shut it down during the Trump years, and it hasn't recovered. And so I would have wished that when he was talking about the economy, even talking about Social Security and Medicare, he could have thrown something into that effect. And I know I'm a sort of one note uh, Linda on this topic, but immigration is the issue that's probably nearest and dearest to my heart. And the fact is the only way you're ever going to sell reform is by selling it to the American people as in their interest to reform the system. It cannot be sold, as the Democrats always try to do, as humanitarian and as, you know, we're doing not something nice for people who want to come here. It's got to be sold as this is in Americans who live here now in their interests that we bring in more people. So that would have been an, an opportunity for him to talk about it in that way. I guess I have one other quibble with his economic message. And it was sort of just a throwaway line, but he talked about wanting to penalize stock buybacks. And this is a big thing on the left. And I just want to say that that is the most insane, stupid thing imaginable, that you would tell companies that they not be able to buy back their own stock and thereby make sure that the value of stock is not diluted for current stockholders is just wrongheaded. And the idea that you're going to tax it and that somehow, you know, it is as if Democrats have not the single most simplistic understanding of American capitalism and what it is that companies exist for, which is to make profits and to return to those investors some uh, profit on the money that they have invested. And one of the ways that you do that when you have to issue additional stock, which you normally have to do because you're issuing it to workers, to employees of the company uh, in the form of bonuses and other things, is that when it becomes profitable to go ahead and buy back some of that stock so that you're not diluting shares, uh, you do that. And to try to penalize that behavior is just nonsense. But Linda, I thought that stock buybacks are only done by little capitalists with pince-nez and top hats and that all the money <laughs> goes into the hands of the greedy capitalists. Yeah, right. None of yeah. it goes to anything good, no, right? No, it goes to the pensioners who have stock in their portfolios. Okay. Because if you dilute the value of a stock, then you make each individual stock worth less than it should be and one of the ways you stop that from happening is to buy back stock when you have to issue, as you do as a company. Generally speaking, you have to issue new stock uh, over the course, not necessarily every year, but you do end up having to do that. And when stock values drop and it's profitable for the company to buy back some of those shares, it makes sense to do it. Anyway, it shouldn't be penalized. Yeah, that's just, that's, you know, basic no, economics 101. A very fair point, and I'm very glad you made it. Now, I'm going to toss this to Jonathan and ask you how you feel about what Linda just mentioned about immigration. And also, I'm going to throw in something else. My particular bet noir about all this is that there are two areas where Biden has 
really pretty much stayed within the lane that Donald Trump tread, namely on immigration and on trade protectionism. And this speech was larded with references to buy American and all of that, as his legislation has been. Just as with immigration, I think, you know, it would be better in an inflationary moment if we had more immigrants, because part of the reason we have high inflation is not enough workers. Similarly, it would be better for Biden if he didn't tax the things that Americans, especially poorer Americans, buy. I mean, you know, inflation causes prices to go up. Taxes on imports are yet another way to raise prices for ordinary Americans. This is not a tax on the rich. It's mostly a tax on everybody, but the rich can afford it. What do you make of those two arguments? Right. They haven't really rolled back the Trump tariffs. No. And I also agree that the Buy America provisions unnecessarily raise the cost of projects. And we really have a crisis in this country where construction has gotten prohibitively difficult um, and expensive for everything. We should be prioritizing making that easier, especially because the green energy agenda requires building so many things of all kinds. Right. We want them to be made easier. Where I have changed my mind uh, over time and, and have come to see Biden's point of view is on some of the domestic onshoring agenda that he managed to get done. And he was boasting about it in, in his speech, the idea of we're going to consciously shape our policies that we're building batteries semiconductors, cars, manufacturing in general here in the United States, that there's economic, foreign policy, and social value in having all those things rather than just trying to maximize uh, GDP as you might do by going in a pure free trade direction. I think he's really kind of tried to take that aspect of Trump's promise and and actualize it. And, and I think there's some real optimism that it's working that, that lots of companies are announcing new investments and opening up new factories in, in some of these towns that are hollowed out. And simply the old expectation that people would just go to school and learn new skills or, or move out of their towns and go somewhere else isn't realistic. That isn't the way any of us want to live our lives. And we need to accommodate reality by creating decent jobs where they live. And, and so I think that aspect of the strategy is worth trying. Damon, a number of observers say that this speech was a practically an engraved invitation by Biden to the Republicans to behave badly and uh, that they fell into his trap. So what do you make of the Republican reaction? I'm not talking about Huckabee Sanders, though. Feel free to address that, too, if you'd like. But just about the people in the room, did they give him an in-kind contribution, do you think? Well, sure. I mean, it certainly made them sound pretty rabid. I'm not someone who really gets up in arms about, oh, the decline of our norms about these things. Given question time in the House of Commons with the prime minister getting jeered, you know, we're still pretty tame by those British standards. Oh, Damon, um, no, it'd be so much better if we had them all going, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm eager for that. But, you know, what I heard the other night was not really even at the close to that level. It's more about the kinds of things they were getting up in arms about just made them sound, I think, really peevish. And especially with the exchanges uh, having to do with social security cuts, there's just too much 
paper trail evidence of prominent Republicans, including the governor of Florida, on the record supporting cuts to entitlements that are very popular with voters. Now, we can have, obviously, big to differ uh, disputes on the podcast about, you know, whether there should be some trims to Social Security and Medicare or Medicaid and how they're funded and raising the age retirement and things. And those are the usual kinds of pragmatic policy debates about how to pay for all of this. But on the simple question of which of the parties are committed to keeping these programs that people rely on versus a party that seems to really, you know, deep down in its heart, if they could, if they could you know, have three wishes and choose one, one of them would be kind of just get rid of the welfare state. You know, again, that maybe that's a little extreme, but there are people on the record in the Republican Party who definitely want to push very much in that direction and seem to be stopped from going further simply by the limitations of the politics on it. And Biden wanted to get them stuck in that trap. And I think he sprung it on them pretty effectively. And especially given that another narrative that was at play and being tested that night was the thing that the Republicans have been saying over and over again, that Biden is a senile, doddering old man who can't string two sentences together, let alone actually run the government. And he's not actually in charge. He can't possibly run again. He's a loser. He's not going to win. And not only did he do a decent job of delivering the speech, but he, like in real time, responded to these provocations, I think, pretty effectively. And that, I think, really did a lot of good for him and the Democrats, both at the level of morale, but then also in kind of resetting the narrative in the news media. They're like, well, wait a minute. Actually, he sounds pretty with it. He can parry with this in real time without the dreaded teleprompter keeping him on track. So again, I'm going to oddly get through, it sounds like this episode of Beg to Differ, uh, being a real Biden cheerleader. But I was <laughs> I was encouraged by what I saw. I guess I won't jump in because I've been going on too long about the Sarah Huckabee Sanders response, other than to say, you know, a version of what I said earlier. I really think it was stunning how extreme her rhetoric was, how much it sounded like if Biden was kind of starting the 2024 campaign for reelect, the Republican answer to that appears to be, we're going to say that the country is a kind of dystopian horror show where tyranny is being imposed under a boot heel right now, right before our eyes. And I swear, there are, I know, Republicans who believe this is true. Anyone who isn't a super partisan Republican listening to that, I think, was like, what are you talking about? I, I really think most Americans probably were kind of baffled by what she was saying. Again, not that we're living in some kind of utopia here, but there are problems. I'm a critic of woke trends and so forth, and I wish Biden actually had a more full-throated criticism of some of this. But that is not the core experience, I think, of most Americans in 2023. And uh, I really doubt that it's going to be a, a message that's going to gain the kind of traction they seem to be presuming it will on the right. Bill, that does bring up a very interesting contrast between the approach of the two parties. Well, certainly between Huckabee Sanders and Biden. 
and and even to a degree with the congressional Republicans as well, namely Biden's speech, for all that I have my problems with his economic policies and whatever, but his speech was intended to reach out beyond his base. He was clearly making a play for independence, for the white working class voter who feels neglected and forgotten, etc. That was a very obvious play. And Huckabee Sanders was gearing her pitch completely to Republican primary voters. Do you think that was because of their differing political agendas? Like, you know, she may want to be somebody's vice president, or does it say something about the nature of the two parties at this moment? Oh boy, what a big question. (laughs) Where, (laughs) Where to start? Well, I'll start with the passage of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' speech that struck me the most. And that was the paragraph where she took JFK's riff about the rise of a new generation and translated it into Republican terms. And I think that there is a clear sense among Republicans that the terms of the debate have changed and that cultural issues are much more central in the minds of the American people and therefore much more central to a politically effective strategy than they would have been a generation ago and certainly two generations ago. And leading Republican candidates for president headed by Ron DeSantis have basically bet the farm on that theory of the case. And I will say, based on what happened in the Florida gubernatorial case, that at the very least, Mr. DeSantis and people who reason as he does have not been punished. I would also say that if memory serves, a man who was elected to the presidency seven years ago chose the theme of American carnage for his first and, God willing, only inaugural address. The fact that the likes of us think a depiction of the country is over the top is no guarantee that a majority of the country is going to agree with us. I have no idea, and certainly after 2016, I have no idea whether the Biden Democratic theory of the case, namely it's the economy stupid, or the new generation Republican theory of the case, namely it's the culture stupid, is going to prevail in the particular circumstances of 2024. But I guess I may differ slightly from others who think that the cultural bet is obviously mistaken and doomed to failure. I'm not sure that that's true at all, for the simple reason that it's not clear to me analytically whether culture or economics has been the bigger contributor to the flight of the white working class from the Democratic Party, which began, let us remember, in 1968. It has been decades since Democrats have had a reliable majority among white working class voters. This is not something that Donald Trump's political genius brought about. And much of that drift away from the Democratic Party, I believe, started with white working class ire over what they saw as a lack of patriotism and cultural extremism among Democrats. And maybe we can cure the problem 
by we, I mean Democrats, without addressing that question. That's Biden's theory of the case. But there's another theory of the case that has a lot of political science behind it. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Okay, Linda, one of the things that I liked the most in Biden's speech and that I think showed him off where he is best is where he showcased the parents of Tyree Nichols. He spoke with great compassion about what they've been through. And then he broadened it out and talked about how most police are honorable, good people, and so on and so forth. And threading that needle and doing it with skill and sincerity, I thought was a fine moment for him and the sort of thing that we certainly would not have seen from his predecessor or perhaps even from some of his would-be successors. So I liked that. I'm wondering if you did and if there's something else that you found particularly praiseworthy or worthy of criticism that you want to just mention. Well, I find myself in agreement with much of what Bill Galston just said in terms of the culture issues not being irrelevant. Put aside you know, Huckabee Sanders, that her response I thought was dreadful. I didn't think it was very effective. She used terms like CRT, which probably listeners of this broadcast know what it means, but the average American probably doesn't. And so it didn't resonate at all. But cultural issues are important. And the needle that was threaded, as you described his dealing with that horrible uh, beating and the parents who were uh, there to uh, be honored uh, as guests of the First Lady was exactly right and was attuned to anxiety about cultural issues. I mean, I think what we saw with the various writing that took place uh, during the pandemic was that uh, many on the left decided that the police were the enemy. And all of the defund the police stuff backfired. It hurt Democrats. And I think that President Biden wants to make sure that that doesn't happen to him. And that it is quite possible to say that what we witness in that terrible beating was absolutely unforgivable, cannot happen uh, in America. And we must figure out ways to prevent that kind of thing from happening. At the same time, as we don't suggest that every policeman is, in fact, going to be engaged in that kind of behavior. And if there's one thing that I think all of us on this podcast understand, is that the communities that are most in need of good policing are low-income communities where more crime is committed. And so being simply being anti-police doesn't solve anything. And so I thought he did that very, very deftly. I thought it was handled exceedingly well. I guess the only other point I would make, and we've sort of made passing reference to it, is that he was really at his best when he was sparring with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others in the audience who were yelling out liar and it's your fault in terms of the fentanyl crisis in America. And that, you know, for those who are concerned about his age, whether he's got all his marbles, you know, whether he's functioning and working on all cylinders, I think he certainly showed there that he was and that he could not fall into a trap 
that had he ignored what was going on, he would have looked weak. If he had been more combative than he was, if he tried to engage in tit for tat, it would have come off badly. But he was able to handle it with a somewhat light touch that diminished uh, the people who were doing the heckling. So, you know, in terms of the speech, I think the takeaway was really not so much about the substance on any of the elements. It was really about the overall effect of this president, who is old and who is not always as sharp as some of us would like him to be, seemed very, very sharp during that speech. And it was not a short performance. It went on for well over an hour. And he... <laughs> Three hours, met, as I, mean, I recall. <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed to go on forever. But, you know, um, as I say, I'm not a big fan of States of the Union, uh, including from, you know, people I agree with more than I agree with President Biden. But I thought he did a good job and he held the audience. And I think that was the big takeaway. Okay, well, that's going to be the last word on that subject. Thank you for that. And let's turn now to the question of somebody who is not old, but does have a very bad press, and that's Kamala Harris. There were stories in both the New York Times and the Washington Post in the last few days about her struggles and specifically about the Democratic Party's worries about her. It is seen that she might be a drag on the ticket, presuming that Biden is running and that she will be his running mate again, because there are a large number of people who feel that she has not risen to the occasion and that people will hesitate to vote for an 82-year-old president if they are very, very dissatisfied with his likely successor should anything happen to him in the second term. And so there's been a lot of talk. So Jonathan Chait, I'm going to start with you. Not all of this is people who are on the other side of the aisle. In fact, a lot of this is coming from Democrats. And I'm just going to play a little clip to set the stage here. This was from The Daily Show. And it was a takedown of Kamala Harris by comparing her with the fictional vice president, Selena Meyer, in Veep. So let's hear a section of that. My fellow Americans, words have many meanings, and sometimes instead of conveying our meaning, they can suggest other meanings. When we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. Well, we are the United States of America because we are united. And we are states. I'm talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time. Whatever we have in store cannot be known. The past was once the future. The future is, I should say, unknown. We got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. Obesity is a serious disease, and it needs to be taken seriously. You need to get to go and need to be able to get where you need to go to do the work and get home. I hope that clarifies the issue, and this can be the last word on those words. <laughs> okay. It goes on a little bit longer in that same vein. Uh... So Jonathan Chait, your take on all this, do you think that was unfair? What's your sense of it? My sense is that Harris hasn't really done anything to prove that she has the talent to be the presidential candidate. And I think she's 
done at least some things to make people think she doesn't have it in her. Her 2020 campaign was was not well organized. She had four different positions on Medicare for All, which was number one, the top issue substantively in the campaign. And and I think the, the, the main issue the press was using to gauge the seriousness of the candidates and to judge them ideologically. She was all over the place. She could spring some really effective attacks, but she didn't seem to have any plans to follow them up or to, or to defend herself when she was under attack. And then she's really churned through staff at a high rate since she's been in, in office as vice president. So I think Democrats are really concerned about her ability to lead the ticket. The New York Times had a piece about this. The media coverage has been really tough on her. And the Times noted that she gave several names to the Times as Democrats who would defend her. And some of those Democrats privately said they don't really think she's up to it, which is one of the worst things I've ever heard about a politician, just in terms of raw political skill. I don't think she's a a bad person. I'm not saying that people would be terrified of what she would do as president, but people really have doubts about her skills as a campaigner because you just have to be a very, very good politician to run for president and win. So that's really what's hovering over the whole question of 2024. You've got the people who are for Biden mostly just don't want him to leave and make way for Harris. And the people who do want him to step aside just kind of yada, yada, yada away the whole question of what are we going to do about Kamala Harris if he does step aside? And I, and I just don't see a lot of people who really want her to leave the ticket or have a real good plan for getting around her if Biden steps aside. So that's the conundrum. Linda, there have been only two presidents in our history who have swapped out their VP when they were running for re-election. One was Lincoln, who dropped Hannibal Hamlin uh, in favor of Johnson, which didn't turn out too well. <laughs> and FDR, who dropped uh, Henry Wallace in favor of Harry Truman. That did turn out very well. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, the VP went on to assume office. Nixon had Agnew. That was a special case. Agnew had pleaded guilty to a crime. A yeah. So those are the only examples. I mean, you know, we're, a lot of people think, gee, it would really be better for everybody concerned, except maybe for Kamala Harris, if Biden were to swap her out with somebody else, you know, Gina Raimondo, uh, Cory Booker, who knows? But it really hasn't happened much, certainly in recent history. It hasn't. And by the way, I don't think it can be something that Biden leads. It would have to be something that Kamala Harris herself decided. And, you know, I haven't seen any indication that she has that sort of self-awareness and is willing to take one for the party. But frankly, it would be a good thing. I think the difficulty will be that the Democratic Party is very heavily dependent on the Black vote. And if there were not a replacement, you mentioned Ramundo, who is obviously a woman, but she's white. I think Biden made this promise that he was going to pick a black woman. I didn't like the fact that he limited his choices in that way. Uh, I don't necessarily think it has to be a woman since that glass ceiling has now been broken. But I do think he needs to have a black running mate in the Democratic Party. It would have to be something that Kamala Harris herself decided. And I just don't know if she, you know, is the kind of person who could do that. I mean, it would clearly help him if he had a stronger running mate. I think she is one of the weaker people that I could imagine being on the ticket. I think you're absolutely right that a lot of people 
are fearful that a man who would be 86 by the time he left office, if he lasted his whole second term, you know, you just don't feel confident in not having somebody who could step into that role and step into it quickly and assume the office of the president. And I don't know anybody other than maybe Kamala Harris's husband who thinks that she could do that. Damon, people, um, myself included, you know, you read stories about churning through staff and you think, oh, well, you know, some people are more difficult to work with than others. But first of all, I've heard these stories, not just from reading them in the press, but from, you know, actual personal experience of, you know, one step removed from people who say the exact same thing, which is that she is very bad about doing her homework. So she demands that staffers stay up all night and get her big briefing book. And then, you know, she goes to the event without having read the stuff. She performs badly. And then she berates the poor staffer for not having prepared her enough. Uh, Apparently, this happens fairly frequently. It's utterly demoralizing for staff. And she has just lost so many. So she's on her second or third chief of staff, her second chief spokesperson, her third communications director. I looked up a story from December of 2021, so more than a year ago. This story was from the Washington Post, and they said, the vice president entered the White House with few longtime staffers. Among the senior staff in her vice presidential office, only two had worked for her before last year, and they named those people. And guess what? Within a few months of that story coming out, both of those staffers were gone as well. So that's pretty intense. What's your reaction? I'm a little uh, hesitant to uh, rely too much on those kind of disgruntled staff member stories because you never know what the full story is behind the scenes and the principal is never going to give you an honest account of what happened no matter what it was. But I do think that what it points to is a combination of probably two things. One, as you said, she's pretty difficult to work for, but then again, If you've ever worked in an executive position working for the principal, the person who owns the pronoun in the room, and I don't mean, you know, in the trans sense, I mean in the sense of when everyone who works there says he or she, they ever, you know who they mean. It's the person. We're all here working 18 to 20 hour days to make look good. We're kind of creating their whole entourage to go through the world and get things done. It's a grueling kind of job. And those jobs are very, very difficult in part because in addition to the job itself being hard, the people who end up in those forward-facing, public-facing jobs are very ambitious. They're difficult people who've clawed their way to the top, and they're not fun to work for. And this comes in part from my experience working for Rudy Giuliani. Also, Tina Brown in the journalism world is one of these people, and I revere her. But, uh, you know, it's hard. You leave at the end of the day and you're like, oh, all right, I'll be back here in three hours and I'm exhausted and so forth. So there's that. But the bigger problem, it's not just that she's difficult to work for, but that people are quitting so rapidly tends to point to the fact that they don't think she has much of a future. If they really believe this person was going to be president anytime soon or could be an effective, positive 
good president if Biden were to die uh, at any time and she stepped into it. They would probably be more inclined to just suck it up, stick it out, endure the rigors and bad attitude and abuse because they would be figuring, well, I'm a Democrat. I care about these things. I want to be the person who's working next to the president of the United States, no matter how difficult she is. But the fact that people are leaving either means working for her is off the charts awful, or I think more likely it's bad probably not that far off the spectrum of normal, but combined with the feeling of this person isn't going to do this, or if they do become president, it's going to be a disaster. And why would I want to be associated with it? As Jonathan pointed out, that bit from the New York Times piece this week, just brutal. That is without precedent in my experience. It's one thing off the record to dish on the person, but to be a close confidant who she sent you to either shows atrocious judgment on her part or it shows she has no defenders anywhere, that even the people who are her ostensible defenders deep down think she's really bad and is worthy of getting kicked, you know, in the gutter. Because they must have known, if they work in the political world, the effect that a quote like that in the New York Times would have. So it's distressing. I really don't know how this ends other than the best case scenario is Joe Biden runs, he wins, and he lives a long time. And and we somehow get, you know, January 2029 and just breathe a sigh of relief. And then she... His mother lived to be 92. So there you go. Although, you know, women do tend to outlive men. So yes. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what's possible. His dad lived to be 86. So there you go. But we'll, who's we'll at least make right. it to the last year. Maybe. <laughs> All right. So, Bill, let's imagine the arguments on her side. Okay. People will say, first of all, that a woman or, and especially a woman of color is always going to be held to a higher standard than other people. People will say that President Biden has not helped her because he has given her kind of intractable issues to be responsible for, like the border, illegal immigration or voting rights. People will say all sorts of things, (laughs) I've noticed. So Let's talk about reality and not what people say. Reality number one is that unless, as Linda recommended, she does the right thing, Joe Biden is stuck with her. He made his bed and he's going to have to lie in it uh, for either two years or six years. So his job is to minimize the damage. And that means starting immediately, consulting with her to figure out what her political comfort zone is. What are the issues where she feels comfortable being full-throated and feels comfortable enough with the substance of the issue to be able to spar with opponents, etc.? I think that she turned out to be more effective after the Dobbs decision on that issue than she probably had been on any other single issue. So what are the issues? What are the audiences? Rather than assigning her tasks that 
she's not interested in and not very good at, and that's not about to change anytime soon. Make her, through scheduling, through issue selection, the best of all possible Kamala Harris's. Because simply hanging back, letting nature take its course, allowing people who are pretty close in with the Democratic Party lob grenades at her over the fence is not good for anyone. It's not good for her, not good for him. But now let me put my political scientist's hat on for just a minute. It is very hard to find an election where the vice president was either a significant boost for or a significant drag on the presidential candidate. A lot of people in Bush 41's entourage were afraid that Dan Quayle would be a huge liability, particularly after his disastrous vice presidential debate with Lloyd Benson. And I can tell you, political scientists have worked hard to find that evidence, and they can't. And it is possible in a really, really close election that the identity of the vice president and the vice president's uh, public profile can have a big effect. There's always a first time, as I've learned the hard way in recent years. And it is possible that with an unprecedentedly old president running for re-election, and a vice presidential candidate whose reputation for gravitas and simple political skill is about as low as I've ever seen, that 2024 could be the year where the identity of the vice president really makes the decisive difference. But I'm skeptical. So his best play, since he cannot remove her, is to make her to repeat myself, the best of all possible Kamala Harris's, and then take the consequences, whatever they are. Of course, there's always the fantasy that some Silicon Valley billionaire who really wants what's best for the Democratic Party and the country decides to create for her some irresistible lifelong sinecure where she'll make gobs of money being the international ambassador for climate or something. I don't know. <laughs> and it would be something she couldn't resist. <laughs> Crazy? Okay. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> moving right along. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all for that. We now turn to our final segment, our beloved highlight or lowlight of the week. And I'm going to start with our guest, Jonathan Chait. Thank you. My highlight of the week was Marjorie Taylor Greene's State of the Union costume. <laughs> she looked like a Russian emigre in a white fur coat, but her staff subsequently explained that she was trying to dress as the Chinese blimp to embarrass Biden. Now, I don't think she pulled off the costume very well, as evidence it had to be explained. I think she probably would have had to gain several hundred pounds to convincingly pull off the role, but the idea of treating the State of the Union address like Halloween, where people come in costume as their chosen political theme, I think is inspired. And I hope that it catches on in future years. <laughs> what did you make of Kirsten Cinema's banana dress? You know, it's a great start. I just think we need to go <laughs> to just full Halloween costume. Like in Washington, there's a great tradition of people dressing as political themes or political characters for Halloween. And I just think we need to bring that to the State of the Union. Okay. 
uh, Linda Chavez. Gee, and I thought she just was dressed like she was going to a bachelorette party and was at a tequila bar. So I missed that whole balloon thing altogether. Uh, My low light of the week was an article in, in the Washington Post about the U.S. Supreme Court and their failure to come up with a code of conduct that they would adopt and all agree to. The Supreme Court is declining in the view of many Americans are now don't have as much respect for the court as they once did. And that's not as if the court has always been well-beloved. It goes in and out of favor with the American public. But certainly um, over the last couple of years, the question of Ginny Thomas's role working as an activist on sort of MAGA political issues, uh, raised questions about uh, Clarence Thomas and whether or not uh, he should have recused himself from hearing any cases having to do with the re-election of Donald Trump. There are other questions that have been raised with the uh, spouses of members even Chief Justice Roberts' wife, who gave up apparently her partnership in a prominent law firm, now does recruiting for law firms. And that question was, you know, if she was involved in the recruitment of a particular person, became involved in a case, or his or her firm got involved in a case that went before the court, should the Chief Justice have to recuse himself? But it all raises questions about the standards. And I think there was a point in which we believe that everybody who managed to make it onto the U.S. Supreme Court was upstanding, moral, would only act in the best interests of the country and in reading the law and do it absolutely in an ethical fashion. But that's now being questioned. And so it would seem to me that the court would want to get ahead of this and come up with a code of conduct, but they so far have not been willing to. And as a result, we now have uh, members of Congress who are suggesting a legislation to create a code of conduct for the court. So that's my low light for the week. Okay, Linda. And since you have hit on a subject that Damon Linker returns to regularly, namely the lack of trust in institutions in our society, I'm going to go to you, Damon, for your highlighter low light. Okay, and my uh, highlight of the week is a totally non-political thing. So it two weeks sorry, in I a row. A, <laughs> yeah, two weeks in a row, and I'm sorry I don't have an elegant bridge from that very nice transition to me. Like, imagine if I had an essay about the lack of trust in institutions. <laughs> However, I'm going to be pointing to uh, an essay uh, in Vulture by Sam Adler Bell, one of my favorite left-leaning uh, writers. He writes about many things that aren't always connected directly to politics, and this is one that sort of half does that and combines it with culture. An essay titled, The Movie Industry's Confused Eat the Rich Fantasy. This is a very nice, very thoughtful essay about several recent films and TV shows. The the main emphasis is on uh, the films Glass Onion, The Menu, and Triangle of Sadness, but it also takes in, in part, bits of HBO's White Lotus and Succession to very popular TV shows and then other recent films. It's uh, about the fact that there do seem to be a lot of cultural artifacts these days that express uh, resentment and anger 
toward uh, the super rich and how that plays out in our culture and in our politics. And this essay kind of synthesizes them, brings them all together and says some very interesting and thoughtful things about the trend. So it's an essay I recommend to everyone uh, listening. Thanks. I'll look forward to that. Okay, Bill Galston. Well, for me, this one is a no-brainer. And unlike uh, Damon's, it's entirely political. Mitt Romney, I think, is a genuinely moral man and is turning into something of the conscience of the Senate and even the conscience of Congress. Uh, And when he saw George Santos edging his way towards the aisle as President Biden walked down it, he had the guts to say to Santos, you don't belong here. I cannot imagine a pithier or a truer way of characterizing Mr. Santos. And uh, Romney said it. And in the Jewish tradition, the ability to deliver a rebuke when it's deserved is highly prized. And Romney, I think, effortlessly found it within himself to do just that. And it was a highlight of my week that he did. I could not agree more that Romney has become a a truly inspiring figure. I would like to mention a piece by friend of this podcast, Tom Nichols, who um, wrote a piece for The Atlantic called Check Voters Deal a Blow to Populism, where he celebrates the fact that the Czech people have just elected a president by a really thumping majority who is opposed to the populist nationalism of his opponent. And Nichols says, look, this is a great victory for NATO, for Ukraine, for democracy, for decency, for many things. And he he acknowledges that, of course, this struggle is not over. I mean, we still have a populist right-wing government in Poland and Viktor Orban in Hungary. But he says, quoting a Czech diplomat, that Pavel, that's the name of the new president, his win seems to follow a tide turning against global populism, including the defeats of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and former Slovenian Prime Minister Janez Jansa. And he says, and we could add the American 2022 midterm elections to that list. So maybe too soon to pop the champagne, but definitely an encouraging, encouraging movement to be celebrated in the Czech Republic. And again, that is by Tom Nichols in The Atlantic. So with that, I want to thank Jonathan Chait for joining us. I want to thank our usual panel, as well as our sound engineer this week, Joe Armstrong, our producer every week, Katie Cooper, and our wonderful listeners. And we will return next week as every week. 